everybody, and welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Natural Science Daily. If you've been keeping up to date on all the episodes, oh my god, thank you for uh, tuning in every week. It, I appreciate it. If you are brand new to the podcast, welcome! I have a super fun-filled episode for you guys. The interview actually took place last week, but I saved it for today. So you guys would have something exciting to listen to while you've been probably quarantined for a week, unless you're one of the food industry workers or healthcare professionals, or let's be honest, anyone in natural science that has field work probably can't do it from home. So if you fall into any of those categories, keep on trucking. You're doing great. Hopefully things get better. <laughs> but in the meantime, if you're quarantined and sitting at home currently listening to me, I appreciate you taking time out of your day for this, and I just wanted to come up with a couple things that you could do. I know I kind of mentioned it last week, but just kind of list off some things you could do to stay in touch with the natural world and not lose your shit, because I know I don't do well with free time. That's why I started a podcast. So, uh, a couple things that are really good that is going on right now is that zoos are doing like live feeds of their exhibits that you'd usually only ever get to see if you went to the zoo. So it's pretty awesome that they're gonna be giving you kind of like an inside look. I've seen a couple like Facebook videos of like a seal just kind of like wandering around an aquarium and that shit's adorable. So I definitely support like you guys looking for some of those zoo feeds or places like uh, the Stanford Museum and Nature Center. If you guys remember the episode with Emily Hers, it was the third episode, I believe. She works there and did a Facebook Live, uh, is it an episode, I guess? Facebook Live, I guess? This morning at 10 a.m. about animal classifications and kind of talked about and presented some of the animals that the Nature Center has. So if you liked Emily's episode, you should definitely go on the Stanford Museum and Nature Center's Facebook page and check out that episode. And I think they're doing more, so you guys should definitely stay up to date on that. Aside from some of the social media stuff that's going on, it is spring. Even though everything else in society is kind of tanking right now, things are coming back. I've seen vultures. I saw an osprey yesterday. That's pretty exciting. I heard woodcocks painting, and if you don't know what a woodcock painting is, stay tuned because we're going to get into that in a couple weeks. But everything is coming back, and it tis the season for making love, so... Everything is coming back in their breeding plumage or it's getting started, mating rituals are beginning, and it's the most exciting time to just go and observe wildlife because things are happening and everyone's waking up and getting ready for it. So I just, even if you just go for a five minute walk, get out of the house, get some fresh air, it's good for those lungs, I highly recommend it. In fact, I'm going to put a little challenge out there. I want to challenge everyone that listens to this to go on a five minute walk this week and take a photo of it, put it on your Instagram story, and tag at natural underscore science underscore daily in your story or your post. I want to see all of them. Tell me where you went, what you did. Even if you don't know the species that you're looking at, I just want to see you outside. It's exciting. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Natural Science Daily. Today I'm here with PhD student Bryn Evans. She is part of Alessia Mortalini's lab here at the university. So Bryn, thank you for joining us. I am very happy to be here. (laughs) 
So you do a lot of camera trapping to target miso carnivores yes. uh, primarily. Can you kind of explain your research a little bit? Sure. Um, so camera traps as a tool overall kind of got started in the natural sciences outdoors community as a tool for hunters um, looking for trophy bucks, understanding animal movement, um, but they're a rapidly expanding tool for all sorts of wildlife, mm -hmm. monitoring, surveys, um, behavioral studies, looking for very rare endangered species potentially outside of their known range. Like you can do anything with them because if an animal moves in front of them, the idea is you have this confirmed replicable piece of evidence that you observed it. Um, so they're a lot more concrete potentially than things like tracks or scat that depend on expensive DNA analysis. Mm -hmm. um, so I've kind of been in love with camera trapping um, since like the second year out of my undergrad degree. We sort of used them as a little bit of a side project, like, oh, we were studying deer and we're like, wouldn't it be cool to kind of know how many predators are in the area where these deer are having their fawns? And mm -hmm. we're looking at like the mortality and life traits of the offspring. We're like, awesome. what, what is killing them? Maybe we want to know about <laughs> them too. And I just thought they were a fascinating tool. Um, so that was more just kind of a broad scale census. Mm -hmm. And then I worked with them on a research project looking at fishers and their reproduction itself, where we use the cameras at the den sites to see the mothers removing their kits to take them to a new den. Um, mm -hmm. And so you could get an idea of how many offspring the females were having okay. by placing a camera facing their, their den opening. I didn't know that fishers would move dens. Yeah, fishers are dens. cool. Um, so I'll, I'll get back to camera trapping, but I'm also obsessed with fishers. <laughs> yes. um, so they have a reproductive strategy called delayed implantation. Mm -hmm. So they actually breed almost immediately after giving birth in the spring. And then the embryos are fertilized and they like begin the dividing process, but then they are delayed at the point of actually like implanting to start developing all the way for like nine months. And so a female Fisher is basically pregnant her entire adult life, but the embryos are only developing starting in like December, don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. And then they give birth in the spring, and obviously kits are in placenta and everything has a strong scent and everything. Right. And they're then going right into estrus, so they're attracting males to their area. Mm -hmm. um, so the theory is they have a natal den where they give birth, and then they start moving their kits to maternal dens sequentially mm -hmm. to kind of reduce that aroma and the attraction and the potential for yeah. a male killing offspring of a, of a previous male or other predators coming and finding the dens. So that research project, um, the cameras were a small part of it, mm -hmm. but they were looking at all sorts of features that might help Fisher have successful reproduction in the Sierras of California, which mm -hmm. have also experienced a lot of logging. So because they need old trees that have these cavities and they need many of them to mm -hmm. successfully raise their young, if those aren't on the landscape, you're kind of limiting the ability right. of a species to reproduce. So anyway, after we started getting fishers on cameras on my other project, I was like 100% hooked. I was like, these are cool. <laughs> I like these. Um, so my master's was also using cameras. Um, it was comparing camera surveys and small plane aerial surveys okay. to look for otter sign in the winter. You can see from a plane if otters have like slid across the ice. They leave wow. a very distinctive track. And then in the fall, you can see beaver activity. Mm -hmm. um, but also, if you have cameras, you don't have to get up in a plane. You don't have to depend on weather conditions, right. the plane not breaking probably through your survey. And you're probably like, well, saves a lot of time yeah, the pilot trouble. is like, yeah, the battery is not working anymore. I think we should go back to the hangar. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> um, so officially, I'm a camera trap junkie. Nice. I wasn't going to continue on to do a PhD after getting my master's degree. And then this position was posted. And mm -hmm. it's camera trapping. It's miso carnivores. It's Maine. Right. It's working with the state agency and a very like management objective 
oriented project with all this potential to do cool theoretical work and methodological work with camera traps. And I was like, well, I have to apply to that. <laughs> How and then I, I interviewed know? with Alessio and I was like, okay, an interview doesn't necessarily mean I'm getting the position. Right. And then I interviewed again. And I was like, <laughs> I guess I'm moving to May. Um, so the project here is kind of a, a very large scale trial endeavor to see if the state could potentially use camera traps as a non-invasive cost-effective tool to monitor multiple species going forward mm -hmm. um, to kind of complement and augment the trapper survey data they already get um, mm -hmm. because if these animals are harvested you want to obviously keep track of how many individuals are coming out of the population um, for recreational right. purposes but that is very dependent on weather conditions, on the price of pelts and the price of equipment, and then changes to the laws surrounding trapping activity. Right. Um, so you can get a lot of fluctuation year to year that's not related to the population of the animals. Okay. So the idea with camera traps is you can put them out any year regardless. You can put them in any um, forest habitat, any season, the independent of where people might be trapping, where it's legal to trap, et cetera. And then you can kind of do that year after year after year mm -hmm. and have a very systematic, consistent data set to look so at. So do you work year round or is there a specific season that you like to focus on or? So we're constrained um, partially just by how much equipment we have. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of cameras, but they still, you know, can only be in a finite number of locations at a time. Right. So I do move them throughout my season. I'll put mm -hmm. them out in one area for three weeks to a month. Um, and then move them to a new, another site. And right now we're targeting the winter mm -hmm. or what is passing for winter this year <laughs> and the summer months. And the kind of logic there is that you can monitor year round with a camera trap, but the analytical approach we're using, it's called occupancy modeling, does rely on a kind of a closed window that you're looking at one little segment of time in the population. Okay. Um, so you can use other approaches to look at continuous time, mm -hmm. but we want this kind of snapshot that then we can repeat sample, break that into finer and finer um, time scales within it and look at the detection process that's actually happening in that window. Mm -hmm. But that gets really complicated if it's such a long time that both detection is fluctuating and the actual occupancy status. If animals okay. are immigrating in and out, the resident individual dies and maybe there's a gap in occupancy for a while, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one reason we're yeah. kind of looking at a, a short period of time. Also, the fall season tends to be when a lot of animals disperse. Okay. And so there's potential, if you put cameras out just then, you may detect a lot of individuals and misconstrue that as an indication that the habitat is really good there. Mm -hmm. When in fact, those are juveniles that don't have an established home range, are dispersing away from good habitat in search of other good habitat, and are potentially more exposed. They may actually be in more dangerous okay. terrain at that point, more open, more vulnerable to predators, not a good source of food, but they're just moving through in kind of a chaotic pattern mm -hmm. that can contribute to their ease of detection which makes it not necessarily the optimal time to right. survey. Again, lots of things you can do with that data anyway, but to simplify things, we're avoiding the fall season for like the core of our sampling mm -hmm. window. And then in Maine, spring is just really difficult for access because of this thing called mud season. Yeah. When there are roads I can get on in the summer in a truck and hiking, yeah. and I can get on in the winter on a snowmobile and snowshoes, and it is inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Once the thaw has begun, it hasn't yet hardened up again. Right. So that's my period of time to analyze the data, get a head start on the summer season. Right. It's just not worth trying to collect field data. Right. 
when you talk about like different sites, do you put cameras in a random spot? You just kind of walk and you're like, this feels good. Or do you, <laughs> how do you decide on a site, I guess, for a camera? That's such a great question. And it varies a lot between studies. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of benefit in the scientific method that mm -hmm. incorporates some randomness okay. because you can try to be as systematic as possible, but the potential for you to either bias your results mm -hmm. subconsciously um, or to just sample only in maybe areas that are really well represented and miss kind of those unique little microsites. Right. Um, so random sampling is kind of just part of the statistics that you want mm -hmm. to incorporate some randomness in your sample to actually have it represent the true population you're trying to then like extrapolate your data to. Right. That said, you have to also put the cameras somewhere they're going to work. So my approach was kind of multi-tiered. Um, first, we needed to pick study areas that really represented the kind of forest we wanted to say something about. Mm -hmm. And we want our data to be as widespread and usable as possible over Maine. Right. So we wanted to target areas of old growth trees, such as like Baxter State Park with big contiguous, hasn't been harvested in a long time, and maybe small, a single township that's protected uh, wildlife management area owned by the Nature Conservancy, something like that, that's surrounded by like ongoing timberlands. Okay. So a small patch of old growth. And the same thing with timberlands, big contiguous areas, multiple townships that are all actively managed for commercial timber, timber extraction, and then a small township that maybe is less um, intensively managed to kind of see how animals are flowing in and out mm -hmm. and if they can use those big contiguous patches of harvest. That's, a, that's an important question. Right. So that was kind of step one. Do a lot of GIS, pick these townships that like we want data here and we want data here and we want data here. Mm -hmm. Within those townships, I then randomized a target location so that I couldn't just drive around and be like, oh, that's a pretty hill that I want to walk up. Right. I might be like, well, this is a ravine of like murderously thick spruce, but that's where my point is. And something like Lynx, it mm -hmm. turns out, if, if the terrain is absolute hell to walk through, <laughs> that is where I detect Lynx. Like if I was able to pick, I would not go into that thicket. Right. But that's where there might be excellent snowshoe hare populations, a nice spot for Lynx to hang out and be able to you know, opportunistically hunt, and mm -hmm. that's where they show up on the cameras. So that element is kind of randomized. Okay. And then within that random location, there is a little bit of kind of where the science and the art of camera trapping meet, where you need to then pick the microsite itself mm -hmm. that those animals are gonna move through. If they have options and they're gonna move through like an easy to move trail mm -hmm. instead of like the really, really dense bushes and stones right. and river or whatever, you obviously don't put your camera trap there, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so we do kind of pick and choose and try and optimize once we're at that site, the probability of seeing an animal that's there. Okay. Do you have like a favorite type of camera or is it, is it just kind of whatever you can get there at this are, point? Yeah, there are so many brands out there. Right. So I, I can't say I've worked with all of them. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I, I would be giving Cuddy back a bad rap. Um, those <laughs> were the very first cameras I ever worked with. So, yeah. oh my God, how old am I? Going on 10 years ago, technology yeah. was pretty new. They used like the compact flash, big cards. Mm -hmm. They used like giant batteries. <laughs> they were terrible. <laughs> But nothing is cutting back now. They very well have probably like updated right. their technology. The um, I currently work with Bushnell, okay. which uh, they're, I think they had this like excellent corner on the market. They had a $100 camera, high quality, does video, does time lapse, does still images. Mm -hmm. And they kind of phased that out and they now offer a much more expensive camera mm -hmm. or a very cheap camera. Kind of unfortunate because that like that $100 right. sweet spot camera um, it seems to be working really, really well for me. Good. That said, I've also had the opportunity to use like $600 Reconyx cameras that's just the image quality 
is incredible. Gorgeous. Um, so you get a little bit of what you pay for, mm-hmm. but um, I've been really happy with kind of the middle of the road. Um, I haven't tried any of the like $25 really, really cheap ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just want to pull one out in your backyard, yeah. and, you know, it's worth a couple bucks, I wouldn't knock it. <laughs> so for, you've obviously set out a crap ton of cameras in your life. <laughs> Do you have any <laughs> tips and tricks to try and kind of like, not to bias your results, but to try and make sure that you're going to see an animal on this camera. You might have a great sight, but if you don't set it right. up right, you may not get it. Absolutely. And it's so funny because the literature right now in like the scientific community mm-hmm. is exploding with camera trap studies. Right. But I feel like there's these few little like important components mm-hmm. that are often neglected. And it's things like how exactly do you choose what a good camera site looks right. like? Um, so one thing I'm collecting data on at my sites is the height that I put the camera above the ground. Okay. There have been a few studies that have looked at this, um, comparing different heights and like whether they're horizontal or actually like above the site looking down, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, turning the cameras sideways, how that affects triggering. Oh, but a lot of studies don't just like list that in their data anywhere, right. you know? Um, and I'm, I, I am biased. I will own this absolutely. I think <laughs> the lower you can set it, the better. Mm-hmm. If you can get the ground in front of the camera um, in your field of view in there, you get things like mice and shrews, squirrels, weasels that just run. They are like right. on speed the entire their entire existence. <laughs> and if your camera is up four feet above the ground, you're going to get beautiful pictures of deer and moose, mm-hmm. which if you're targeting a trophy buck, sure, that makes sense. But you're going to miss everything else in the ecosystem. Right. And there's um, so many important species that are just so low oh yeah yeah that's where the food chain starts and Mm -hmm. yeah so drawbacks to setting them really low in the summer you're much more susceptible to vegetation Mm -hmm. growing up and blocking them so if you're gonna have to leave your cameras out for a year it's not ideal um in the winter snow events will cover the camera Mm -hmm. more readily what i've found so far is that even if you place a camera two feet up if it's into the wind for one storm you can still get it absolutely plastered with snow and you lose a few days of data, yeah. regardless of how high you set it. Mm-hmm. But if it's set up too high and it's missing the ground underneath, it's not collecting as useful data. Right. So I err to the side if I want my data to be good on the days it's operational. Mm-hmm. And then I have all my cameras always set to take a time-lapse image so that okay. it's recording just a still picture regardless of motion trigger every day. Okay. And that tells me, okay, this day it was under snow. Mm-hmm. It wasn't available to detect an animal. There could have been a fishers frolicking <laughs> It right in front of it and it wouldn't have recorded them so that data for me as a scientist just gets kind of a little dash it's like if there's no data for this day it's mm-hmm. not a non-detection yeah it said it wasn't even basically set and then i can censor out all the days that it's under snow okay. and so it doesn't really hurt my data set mm-hmm. um so that's kind of the trade-off i've come to but like camera height is one thing i put them like knee high mm-hmm. and then i really will get down in front of the camera and move like a weasel wood or an otter wood or a bobcat mm-hmm. or whatever where right where like the trail junction is or yeah. in my case I use bait and lure so I want to make sure that of anywhere in the forest if an animal comes to my bait that I am specifically placing for it mm-hmm. that is like prime spot for the camera to trigger okay right and then I kind of like make sure it's triggering nice and low kind of on either side mm-hmm. um, so I do just spend a little bit of time with nice. the camera site think about if I was an animal would I move you know on this side of this tree or that side of that tree and you can't control an right. animal may do exactly the opposite of what you anticipate, but if you just spend a little time thinking about it, um, mm-hmm. you tend to get better results. Are you choosing the exact same sites over the course of your research study, or is it kind of you're bouncing around year to year kind of thing? Both, okay. in fact, yes. So we want a lot of coverage, right? So mm-hmm. it's really hard to only 
sample in a few areas and get that consistency if you also want a lot of like spatial data. Mm -hmm. um, so some sites are surveyed one summer and one winter yeah. so that we can compare between the seasons and then they're never visited again. Mm -hmm. Between the summer and the winter, I try as much as possible to go back to exactly the same location okay. um, so that we're not adding new variables mm -hmm. in. If, for example, in the summer, it's really, really dense vegetation mm -hmm. and I have to place it in like the one little clearing that's available, and I come back in the winter and it's this beautiful open landscape, I may move like the angle of the camera to face a wider open mm -hmm. area as opposed to like the one little clearing. Yeah. Things like that, small changes, I don't feel like compromise the data. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are some locations, what I call my permanent or my sentry sites, mm -hmm. that I then go back to the next summer and winter and the next summer and winter and the next summer and winter. So the hope is that that will give us some like change turnover in occupancy with okay. time regardless of like habitat also changing so yeah. we can kind of tie those two together and look at the habitat features as well as just the annual fluctuation okay yeah throughout this whole study that you've done do you feel like you've had any challenges that you didn't really expect come up again to come up against I feel like you can plan for everything and then you get out there and you're like well <laughs> but didn't that's see this I mean for me that's like I'm a field ecologist yeah. I absolutely love like the the theoretical breakthroughs mm -hmm. that other people do that's not how my brain works though like yeah. i'm not good at anticipating every little challenge and thinking it through and everything i like to be like what are all the things that could happen what possible tools could i use to help me out mm -hmm. and then go do it and something that you did not anticipate will come up and you just you have to solve that problem right then right there mm -hmm. and then that knowledge is in your arsenal for like okay if this ever happens again <laughs> i have at least one tool in my toolbox that i can like you know bring <laughs> out again to try and solve it um so things like yeah trying to get to a location that we went to in the summer mm -hmm. you come back in the winter and just terrain access everything is it's a whole new world and mm -hmm. so unlike going into a new site brand new you know you have no preconceptions you kind of go into it thinking you know what to expect and you don't know right. what to expect <laughs> or sites that I've been to three years and the third year it's mud trees are down roads are blocked you're like okay this is no longer an easy peasy walk in walk outside I gotta you know flex my schedule a little bit right. figure out what we're gonna shift around um, unexpected things that have been challenging are just um, the conditions in Maine. Mm -hmm. It can be hard on vehicles, hard on equipment. Um, weather can just come out of nowhere. Right. And I've learned now, like I learned early on that you don't try to work in an actual blizzard. Mm -hmm. You go, you go home, yeah. you just drive home, you just cancel those <laughs> days, you wait for it to stop. But I didn't anticipate that I would also need to give it three or four days after right. like a giant storm for the snow to settle because my snowmobiles are workhorses, mm -hmm. but they cannot go through six feet of powder on top of logging roads that have never been plowed. Right. So like, I was like, okay, we had to wait the storm, we're going. And I went, you know, drove four hours north, got on the snowmobiles, 200 meters up a road, we're stuck. Like 100% just buried in snow. Mm -hmm. Takes us two hours to dig a circle around to get back out. And then like, okay, well, that was an entire day shot. Right. So things like that, I'm every, every year I'm learning something, mm -hmm. um, definitely. Had you ever driven a snowmobile before getting to Maine for this project? I had ridden them in Minnesota okay. for my master's on frozen lakes, mm -hmm. wide open, flat, completely different snow conditions. Um, one of the most valuable learning experiences I've had in my entire life. Mm -hmm. I think it was the second day I was in Maine. Um, my advisor, Alessio, the IFNW biologist at the time, Corey mm -hmm. Mosby, and I um, were treated to the most epic day of like, throw you in the deep end of the pool. Um, Mark, I believe his name was Mark. 
most amazing red beard, works with IAW, <laughs> born on a snowmobile, I swear to God, was wow. like a dancer on a snowmobile, um, took us out and was like, we are going to go get stuck. Nice. And then we're going to get unstuck, and then we're going to ride until we're stuck again, and then we're going to unstuck, and we're just going to repeat, repeat, repeat. That's so important. Deep though, powder, uh, going around trees, you know, up and over fields where you don't know what the obstacle is, and you just, you think you've got control of it, you're just like on it, on it, on it, all of a sudden the littlest bobble, and it just like sinks to one side, just, you're completely buried in powder, and mm-hmm. he'd run over to us and be like, all right, jump on the snow here, pack it down, yank the snowmobile down, now rev it out, like, just, wow. we did it over and over and over again, incredible, exhausting. Right, um, But yeah, the conditions off off trail, you know, ungroomed, totally different than uh mm-hmm. than like snowmobiling for leisure. That's but, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found things during this project that have surprised you? Because I know um like Mike Boyaskis used some of your camera photos mm-hmm. to do his honors thesis, I yep. believe. Yeah, he actually and that had his own data as okay. well. He set he set cameras by himself. So. so is has there been more of that kind of thing that you didn't expect to get this kind of data but you're like this is something that we should use for something else maybe. <sighs> you, I kn- I didn't know what to expect mm-hmm. honestly. So in some ways everything is new yeah. and different um, which is great. It has been really amazing to be able to produce such a big data set mm-hmm. that I literally cannot analyze all the data right. even if I was working around the clock. Um, So Alessio was very considerate, very conscientious before, you know, kind of piecemealing out the components I can't look at. So we have a new, Mike Bioskis obviously did his study, which was a question we had. He was looking at if the bait, the lure, or a control, Mm -hmm. how much of a difference that might make. So he Mm -hmm. kind of set his own cameras in a similar method to my very first um, work that we did here, comparing between methods at the same exact location. so that was an important question. We just didn't have time. We don't have resources to do everything we want to do. Right. Same thing. We now have all this data on bears, and we're getting to see um, some demographic information as well, which we hadn't really factored in. If you stop and think about it, yeah, bears have cubs. They're probably all going to show up at the camera at one mm-hmm. point or another. Um, some bears, you can actually see the gender pretty easily based oh, wow. on their behavior because they rub their backs on cameras, mm-hmm. and they tend to spend a lot of time interacting with the site more so than other species. Mm-hmm. So when we started first going through the data, I was just tagging them as like, an individual bear or a group with mm-hmm. a number of individuals, and that's usually a mother with um, cubs. Yep. And then we started looking at where we can do a model that takes into account this extra layer, this extra dimension of mm-hmm. demographic data. Are they successfully reproducing? And you can confirm okay. that by seeing a mother with cubs. Yep. But it's a whole another set of analyses, a whole another chapter of literature review, a whole another set of interpretation. And so Alessia was like, if you're sure it's okay, like there's a student coming in from India doing an um, MWC, the non-thesis okay. masters, and he's really excited about carnivores, would it be okay if maybe he looked at the bear data? And I was like, please, <laughs> someone analyze this data. There's right. just so much. And who knows what we're going to find Exactly. It. If it could complement the uh, IFNW ongoing study with bears that they mm-hmm. have collared and they do really intensive work but only in a few small areas, right. that would be amazing. I would love for that to come out of this. I can't mm-hmm. do it myself. Yeah, you know? you're only um, person one of the chapters we're going to start writing that kind of came about after we got the first year of data was on martin and fisher co-occurrence patterns okay they're species i've been fascinated by for a really long time really interesting animals and in some parts of their range they segregate themselves on an elevational gradient Mm -hmm. in california martin are at high elevation deeper snow the theory is the heavier fisher can't access them prey Mm -hmm. on them or out compete them 
right? That makes sense. In Wisconsin, both species were extirpated. Hmm. They reintroduced Fisher, their populations are stabilizing. Tried to reintroduce Martin, and they it just can't, this population is not taking off. Hmm. Potentially poor habitat, poor prey opportunities, or competition and predation by Fisher. Okay. Here, we see some areas where there's abundant Fisher, very few Martin. Some areas where there's abundant Martin, very few Fisher. Some areas where they are both relatively common, some areas where they're at the same camera sites, potentially in the same night, many nights in a row, seemingly overlapping both in space and time. Huh. What is going on? Right. So we're going to do um, some analyses looking at species co-occurrence models that are relatively new approaches. Um, so stuff like that. Like I didn't, I didn't come into this expecting to see this particular interaction. I expected mm-hmm. to find both of these species and kind of ask questions and look at data on each of them independently. Mm-hmm. But this degree of overlap was not what I was looking to find. And right. now that we find it, we're like, we want to, you know figure out what's going on here. That's awesome. Yeah. So you have and probably an ignorant amount of data, like photos to go through. (laughs) How do you go through it all? I know you hire some students. I've seen, um, I think it was Mike Shaw. We were were in a fisheries class once my senior year, and I just look over, and he's just, there's, like, camera photos. He's just looking through, like, a bear doing something. He's just, like, tagging photos while, like, our teacher's, like, presenting on, like, fisheries and stuff, and he's just, like... Well, Did he say something? So I feel bad, but some of us are mammal people, not right. fish people. Mad respect for all the fish people. They're oh. super important. But, it was um, just so yeah, funny. I, 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 can, like, I can relate to that. This is definitely a little bit more interesting right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a number off the top of my head for this project. For my mm-hmm. master's, I personally looked at 800,000 pictures um, because I had them set for semi-aquatic species mm-hmm. and they got a lot of false triggers of waves. Mm-hmm. But I want to... At least every image, however briefly, has had human eyeballs look at it, Good. confirm, is it is there an animal present, is there not? And click, mm-hmm. click, 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 click. So I tag absolutely everything. Nice. Um, this project is five years, um, four times as many cameras. I don't want to do the math right mm-hmm. now on how many images that is. So I yes, I have, um, when, I, when I have the availability of funds and a student that has work study, I can mm-hmm. pay them money to look at pictures. Nice. I also take on a lot of volunteers. Mm-hmm. And basically, I will train you on it. Um, it takes time. It's a process. Right. you got to be careful. And I don't expect anyone to know how to do it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You don't. You develop this skill over time. I basically ask, like, if I spend two hours training you, please put in four hours of volunteer right. time. And after that, like, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. I always have a few volunteers who are like, I love this. I want to keep doing it. Example, Mike Shaw. <laughs> um, or uh, Pierce had been working for me for free for a really long time. Finally got work study. I was like, sweet, I can finally pay you for this like awesome. the hours you put in. Um, he sent me a hilarious, he made himself a little meme. And I, I am not savvy enough to know the actual reference, but I think it was Thanos. It okay. looks like Thanos or something. Um, because some of, a lot of our, to back up, a lot of our cameras have like 200 to 400 pictures on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they have more than 999, it goes into multiple folders. Okay. That's just how it is. So like when you click in a folder and it says like there's three different folders in there, you know there's at least like... 2,000 plus images and then it like sends you a warning when you're going to upload it into the program or whatever Mm -hmm. so Pierce made this meme that was like basically I fear no man but this and then he had like inserted a little image that's like are you sure you want to upload 2,000 plus (laughs) images or whatever he's like this scares me (laughs) I I can relate it It can be really painful Um, and then I'm also a control freak so even after someone has done the tagging I'll Mm -hmm. still like really quickly go through and double check it right you just you Um, gotta make sure you're getting the right information yeah like that's so important and the theory there is then we never have to look back Mm -hmm. through them we have everything tagged I'm not doing for example anything with grouse data right now but I have them all tagged and so the hope is that 
Dr. Blomberg can mm -hmm. one day have an undergraduate student do an honors thesis project on the grouse data. Mm -hmm. And if they want to know like behavior, gender, stuff like that, they'll have to come back and look at the image, right. but they'll know exactly where to find that image. They don't have to look through That's the hundreds awesome. of thousands of pictures That's again. Exciting. So we're putting the time now and hopefully it'll pay off right. in the long run. That's good. Small caveat plug for all the smart people in computer science. Yeah. There is a lot of effort going into automating the process, some AI skills to at least technology to say take a picture of the background and then basically extract all the empty frames okay. and say there was nothing in this frame here's mm -hmm. the 10% that you need to actually look at or nice. take the silhouette of a common animal like a raccoon or a deer mm -hmm. and say we're 90% sure this picture is a deer and then you can decide whether you want to trust that algorithm mm -hmm. and not look at all those images or if you want to double check them right so that isn't accessible to most people yet mm -hmm. but in five years Hopefully, right. the amount of time I have spent making my eyeballs bleed, <laughs> staring at computer screens, clicking through images, oh, wow. will be obsolete. Yeah, that's, that'll be huge. Yeah. yeah, that'll make a big difference. So, more kind of a general question. How is a, because you've done a master's and you're working on your PhD different, mm -hmm. how are those two experience different? Aside from the different schools and that kind of thing, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. is the experience different or like the level of science different at all? Uh, yeah, it varies a lot by project by advisor mm -hmm. I would say probably the key difference is just the scale mm -hmm. um, so my master's project was important work I'm proud of and everything yeah. but it was a smaller study area a shorter term mm -hmm. fewer species you know stuff yeah. like that you just you kind of have one question right. and with a PhD something you're gonna take multiple years mm -hmm. you're expected to produce multiple publications you kind of have a larger scope that mm -hmm. you expand out into um, I think the you know other side of that is that you got to spend a lot of time planning mm -hmm. make sure that you don't end up four years down the road and realize your methods were flawed or you really should have done your surveys different or right. something um, obviously that happens mm -hmm. as well and you work with what you have and it's fine um, but a lot of planning and thinking needs okay. to go into a project that's the scope of a PhD yeah. um, another difference is there is even less emphasis on coursework in a PhD nice. um, so relative to like an undergraduate degree there's less emphasis on a cor on coursework in a master's. Okay. Um, you still take a few classes, your grades, you know, you should still study and learn the things you need to learn, mm -hmm. but you're going to be judged on the quality of your thesis and your results mm -hmm. and your product, your production of like, you know, the scientific product at right. the end, not just your GPA. Okay. Um, even more so with a PhD and potentially that also is varied by advisors. Mm -hmm. Our advisors, like your project is your life. Like <laughs> don't even worry about grades or everything okay. else. Like that's just a, a formality nice. unless it's a course that's you know, your methods class or yep. something like that, in which case you better memorize everything <laughs> and know it all. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a, it okay. just kind of tapers out like what your your mm -hmm. focus really is. And the PhD, we get to do a little bit more work on teaching. It's a little more encouraged to yes. experiment with mentorship, outreach, mm -hmm. you know, what you may end up doing as a professional. Because yeah. it is, you're expected to be becoming a, a colleague in right. the academic community, mm -hmm. um, which this is a really great department to do that in. Good. That's awesome. So you've chosen, you went through the process of picking a master's and then decided to start your PhD. Do you have any advice for people? <laughs> Sorry. You're good. <laughs> uh, do you have any advice for people on how to choose a program or how to decide to proceed with a higher level of education? So I can only speak to like my experience. Right. Um, I think for me, it was really valuable to take some time between my undergraduate degree to work um, 
before I went on to my master's mm -hmm. degree. So I worked for the state of California for four years. I was kind of able to develop some of the project management mm -hmm. skills and like the behind the scenes, like how do you actually keep things running mm -hmm. that then are essential when you're in charge of a project mm -hmm. um, that you don't necessarily learn unless you're like really involved in a lab or something as an undergrad. Um, and then I basically only applied to things that I would be interested in and excited in doing. I yeah. think that's a really important component. People that are just like, I need a degree, I'll do anything, you know, I'll spend two years even if I don't have any interest in the topic, mm -hmm. mad respect. Um, <laughs> it's hard though, it's, you spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and you're kind of some parts of your life are on hold while you're in grad school. Right. So for me, I knew I only wanted to do that if it was something mm -hmm. I was excited about and like had, for example, field work as well as lab work right. and was involved with an agency as well as kind of developing basic ecological knowledge, mm -hmm. you know. So I looked for those components. I applied on Texas A&M usually. I definitely sent a few cold emails out yeah. early on, um, but looked for posts that were funded already. Mm -hmm. So you kind of are more assured that you'll be able to do something. They're gonna be interested in hiring someone. Mm -hmm. You can plan ahead to see like, do I have skills that mm -hmm. are gonna actually be relevant to this work? Um, and then when I got my master's, it was a position they had been waiting on like the paperwork to come through and waiting and waiting and waiting and finally they're like we have to post this right now right. because if we don't get a student now we have to wait like a year to start the project so they posted it and they wanted they like posted it and applications were due like four days after the posting date which Jeez. was fantastic for me because i am a procrastinator <laughs> so i was like i gotta get my resume updated i gotta like contact all my references real quick and just mm -hmm. be like hey do you mind i'm gonna submit your name you yeah. know for this right um in like a day mm -hmm. so i just did it sent it out um applied for actually another i had actually been told from a former colleague about a different project on texas a&m mm -hmm. working with mountain lions in new mexico and i was like okay i guess i guess i'll look at that and i was like oh what about this like meso carnivore one mm -hmm. with camera trapping and he's like i don't know about it but apply for it just like do it <laughs> he's been trying to get me to go to grad school for like three years at that point <laughs> and i'm like oh, maybe maybe i don't know i'm scared um and it just it happened so fast right. they interviewed they interviewed me like two days after the project closed mm -hmm. woke up the next morning i, I think it's like my 24th birthday or something <laughs> woke up to the offer and they were like we realize this is short notice, but can you please let us know in two hours if you would like to accept it? Because we we'd like to ask our second choice because it was, I think it was a Tuesday morning and they're like, Thursday at noon is the deadline for your paperwork to be in at the university. And the university staff were fantastic. They Good. knew this was like a unique situation. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, the, the path to grad school there was kind of slow and meandering until all <laughs> of a sudden it was like a mad dash right. to the finish line. I am so grateful that I had already taken the GRE. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I tell people, even if you want to take some years to work, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Study for it, take it, have it in your back pocket okay. for when something like this happens. Because yeah. you don't want to be in a situation where you're like, I'm the perfect candidate, this is the perfect position, give me two months to study for my GRE, hopefully I get high enough scores to be admitted. Yeah. Like you don't want to be passed over because you're not ready right then right. and there. So take the GRE, have some of your transcripts in your back pocket so mm -hmm. you can overnight mail them to a university. <laughs> it's like, we need them. Um, yeah, so that process was, I think, a little unorthodox, mm -hmm. but everyone's path ends up a little bit different. Okay. Um, basically, same thing for this PhD. Mm -hmm. I had looked at a few. He said I was getting ready to graduate. I interviewed for a few. Didn't get any offers because they weren't the best fit. Like, mm -hmm. that's fine. That's how it happens. It's really good to go ahead and apply and interview and get rejected because you get that experience mm -hmm. going. You're a little more calm when you're right. interviewing with Alessia Mortaliti on <laughs> Skype. Um, yeah, so then I interviewed for this one, and I was like, uh, I 
I wasn't going to go straight into a PhD. I was not going to do that, but this, this project is perfect. Good. So, That's yeah, awesome. yeah, same thing happened. I was like, well, <laughs> haven't been to Maine in 10 years. I guess I got to look for an apartment online and <laughs> move. Oh, geez. Yeah. So one question that I want to make a point to ask everyone I interview, um, just because it pertains to the reason I made this podcast, is I saw that not enough of the general research that goes on reaches the public. They don't mm-hmm. always know that this is happening. Um, that was a flaw I saw in the scientific community that I wanted to kind of fix. Absolutely. Um, so do you feel like you see any kind of flaws or something that we as scientists needs to work on more in the field? Like in this field, not like the field. Right. But yeah, 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 do you yeah. see any, any, is there any topic or idea that you think we should work on more? I think you have definitely hit on a really big one, Mm -hmm. and that's we have, we're kind of at war between this archaic, pristine, like special image of science, that it's these great thinkers alone (laughs) in their towers that are like, yeah, classical physics in mathematics is beautiful, Mm -hmm. it's amazing, but it's out of touch with a lot of what's going on day to day, and I think it kind of does create mistrust um some idea that like yeah cool that applies to you but it doesn't apply to me Mm -hmm. whereas right now in the world we're in science applies so urgently to everyone Mm -hmm. and it's not just theoretical and calculated it's lived it's changing it's happening there are consequences if we don't take informed action Mm -hmm. you know um so i think that disconnect is something we really need to start bridging okay my master's advisor, Tim Van Dielen, led a special seminar on kind of the balancing of advocacy mm-hmm. and science. Because what you don't want to do is compromise the integrity of your science right. by seeming like, you know, a fanatic for one outcome. That mm-hmm. you're like, are doing a study to prove your point, right? right? We still have to be impartial and unbiased and open to being contradicted or being proven wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. That's really, really important, but we're also human and we do this because we care. Mm-hmm. And being open to that and honest about that and transparent about that, mm-hmm. I think actually makes our science a lot more approachable, valuable, digestible. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the tools I see potentially coming forward, I think right now, again, it's kind of preaching to the choir, is yeah. um, Twitter. Yeah. So being on Twitter, I follow some really awesome people of diverse racial, racial backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, the black birder, yeah. like just components of that. They're saying, look, we're here. We're part of this. Right. This is important. That invisibility is starting to get broken down. Mm-hmm. I don't know how widespread the audience is for that, um, mm-hmm. but that's kind of another weak spot that yeah. I think we could start actively engaging with and yeah. science and wildlife research and conservation as a whole will benefit from tackling yeah. those components. That'd be awesome. Yeah. So those are all the questions that I have, but I do want to play a little game of (laughs) would you rather, but the science edition. Um, (laughs) So I played with this with Kyle Lima last week on the podcast, (laughs) and he definitely did not see some of them coming, but I think it's Kyle, and he always wants to give a really good answer. Okay. Um, So one time you told me about when you were... Um, trap, uh, looking for carnivores, you had to do this. You had like bear bait, and it was absolutely disgusting. Ugh, you said it felt so bad. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh god, yeah. I know, I know exactly what bait you're talking about right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> would you rather accidentally get a skunk lure in your mouth or smell like the bear bait all the time? Oh my god. Uh, um, so 
I'm gonna I'm gonna really I'm just gonna <laughs> illustrate this for the audience yes. here. So the skunk lure that has just been alluded to is um, imagine if you took like Vaseline mm -hmm. and then there's a lot of different components. Some of the recipes are very secret and closely guarded. <laughs> Shout out to Jerry Braley for selling me his special main concoction. Um, but it kind of smells like if there was a roadkill skunk mm -hmm. that was then like eaten by a fox and then <laughs> defecated back out and then left to like rot in the sun. It's like, it's like skunk spray plus like sweet rotten meat just it's just god awful <laughs> right and then it's in like this oily yep. oily form um, the one i use also has a pleasant note of like garlic it's yep. also like a little spicy i don't know if it's got some like some um it's got some beaver castor or mm -hmm. some other things in there anyway so that's the that's the vaseline mm -hmm. and if that sounds bad the other option is actually worse <laughs> um we were using a, a concoction for like a really long distance lure. It's supposed to be mm -hmm. really, really potent yeah. um, to try and attract bears where we weren't sure there were any bears coming in yet. There was mm -hmm. a population that was maybe expanding into another mountain range. Um, so if they're there, you really want to get them <laughs> to come into your site. So that was 40 gallon barrels of cattle's blood straight from a, from a butchery, yep. basically, um, a slaughterhouse. And then we took marine fish this was in California. Oh, fish are the that worst. had yeah, fish are just okay, yeah. I'm not a fish person, but there's something about a rotten fish that's just like extra special. <laughs> we chopped them up a little bit with machetes, so they were nice and like, you know, yeah, porous. Mix it up. Dumped them in the barrels of blood and let them ferment for six weeks. We had to go and stir them every week. Oh my god. Um yeah, I we, we had to wear hazmat suits. Yeah. Like literally the hazmat suits, goggles. We had um little mouth covers that we would rub like artificial um like raspberry scent mm -hmm. on the inside so that oh, kind of tried to combat it. And I would still the day we had to prep the bait we would mm -hmm. stir them we would like <laughs> squirt them into these Nalgene bottles and then we would pour out in the field um, I would immediately we're wearing gloves everything come back shower change clothes and I would still smell like it like it, that stuff just like soaks into your pores um, so my cats would love it mm -hmm. if I smelled like that all the time but I would I would put that Vaseline directly on my tongue before I would smell nice. like that that blood bait? Yeah, <laughs> no, I would. I, really, I couldn't. I do had it. to ask because this one time during May term, which is a course like a intense field course that you main students have to take, and Alessio was handing out that um, oh, yeah, to he, people, uh -huh. and he someone needed something, so he went to go put the stick that he was using in his mouth to hold it to do something, but he put the wrong no, end no, no, no. in his no, mouth, no, 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 no. and he just like stopped, <gasps> and I don't. What did it taste like? I have no did idea. Did he say? I didn't oh ask my him. God. And I don't know if he knows I saw it because he just stopped <laughs> and froze for a second. And then he just took it out and then just looked down like, what have I done? And then I would have given to anything do. to see that. Oh, and my God. I was just like, I don't know if I should ask, but that was amazing. <laughs> okay, listen. Oh so tangent somewhat yeah. but this is yeah, I have just like a, this crystal clear memory in my mind first fall out of school I had worked on a deer project and mm -hmm. I worked on my first carnivore project kind of where I became obsessed with fishers mm -hmm. um, super cool we were using scat detection dogs to yes. run around the woods and when they found scat they would like stare at it and freeze because they know if they detect scat they get to play with their ball um, so my job as the technician the handler was watching the dog and like noting mm -hmm. their behavior and everything and then my job was to record the data about where we were and if it was scat mm -hmm. um, look at it inspect it and if it had a probability of being fisher scat we would collect it yes. and then get dna testing and one of the ways so twisted bolted tapered is what you look for with fisher scat okay. tft um and also a kind of musky mm -hmm. aroma right 
So I was being trained by Wes Watts. <laughs> you ever hear this, Wes? I, I saw this happen. <laughs> um, and there's a, a technique called the chopstick technique where you pick up two sticks and you use them like a chopstick to pick up the piece of scat. Mm-hmm. So you can bring it closer to your nose and take a nice little sniff. Don't do this if it could possibly be raccoon scat. Yeah. That's the only scat that you can inhale um, some pathogens, uh, what are they called? Parasites, okay. parasite eggs. So not recommended, but if you're a trained professional mm-hmm. and it's twisted, folded, tapered, you can use the chopstick method. And he's like, oh, also, if you like <sighs> kind of breathe on it to like warm it and moisten it, you can like get some scent out. So anyway, he's there, he's like, <sighs> and I see the tip of the poo just touched no. directly onto the tip of his tongue. Like I see it happen. And sure enough, he like jerks it away and does the little like side side quick check to see if anyone saw and kind of like, like spits no no mention of it whatsoever and I had just met this guy he's my he's my like training you know he's the technician that's training me I'm like I'm not gonna say anything but yeah I like can see it in my my mind to this day so yeah we get uh some interesting things in our mouths I got I got you can see the the audience can't see but I have a if it was a little more jagged like a perfect Harry Potter scar going on my forehead from tackling well being tackled by a tree um yeah yeah, and they regularly just like you gotta watch salt you in the mouth and yeah yeah so next would you rather question would you rather um have to do like be like three miles in the woods and your snowshoe breaks or would you have to rather have to walk three miles in the main woods in the summer without a bug net so i'm gonna be able to cheat on this one because this winter in like deep powder far mm-hmm. north up in the Aliash, we had snowmobiled into a site and we had like three more sites to go to mm-hmm. and my snowshoe did break oh no it did break but because my cameras have like um fairly robust straps that we mm-hmm. use to strap on the tree i actually repaired my snowshoe using a strap and it's still holding i had to like fix it once mm-hmm. you know um so yeah if you have some tools available awesome. and i am not as tough as native mainers like mm-hmm. i live in a bug net in the summer here <laughs> um so i think i'll I'll take trying to uh, MacGyver my snowshoe any day yeah. over not having a bug net in the summer. <laughs> That's great. Um, so last, would you rather question, would you rather, if you say you have like a three-day camping trip to get to a site, nice. would you rather have to only cook over the fire or have to eat canned soup off of a stove the entire time? Hmm. This is definitely a preference question. Yeah. So like culinary aesthetics me Mm -hmm. i love food cooked over a campfire um practical field tech me who has more than once eaten a can of soup cold directly from the can (laughs) just because like food needs to get into my body right right now um i say ease of consuming calories Mm -hmm. trumps the gourmet aspect aspect any day and sometimes your wood is wet and like you just want to get in the tent you know Mm -hmm. fires are nice but like when i'm camping for work they are they're a luxury so i will take a cold can of soup and guaranteed meal (laughs) anytime awesome well those are all my questions for the day thank you so much for being here so much for having me it was really a pleasure good i hope you enjoyed it all righty so we are back I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Bryn and learned about a tool that a lot of wildlife professionals and natural scientists use very often. Cameras are developing at a rapid pace. There are cameras that you can connect to your cell phone and look at remotely or have the photos sent straight to your phone. And even if you don't think that you're ever going to become this crazy researcher, This is something that you can do in your backyard and 
cameras can be so affordable and I just thought that this would be a great way to show that something as simple as a camera strapped to a tree can turn into this huge wealth of information and knowledge that we can learn from but it's also something that you guys can do on your own you can put this camera up in your backyard even if you live on a in a city like you can get photos of foxes and coyotes and raccoons and possums like there is wildlife everywhere and I just wanted to really focus on that especially in this time of quarantining this could be something fun that you go do and learn more about your backyard and your surroundings so that is all I have for you guys this week I hope you continue to stay positive stay in touch with what's going on with natural resources even in this wild time please maintain a six-foot distance and continue to make natural science part of your daily conversation